Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. I hope you've got your warm drink in hand. My guest today is Dr. Scott Perryman, and he has a passion for combating the obesity epidemic. Dr. Perryman is a board-certified surgeon, and his specialty is weight loss surgery. He runs the Whole Health Weight Loss Institute in Napa, California, and is a full active member of the American Society of Metabolic and Weight Loss Surgery. In 2018, he was recognized by his colleagues as one of the Bay Area's top doctors. He empowers his patients with emotional and psychological awareness, giving them tools that last beyond the effects of surgery, tools that last a lifetime. Let's listen to the episode. Well, hi, Dr. Perriman. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, my name is uh, Dr. Scott Perryman, and I am a a weight loss surgeon. Some some call it a bariatric surgeon. And I live in California, but I was raised in Canada. Uh, So still have ties. (laughs) In fact, my mom still lives there. Um, And uh, I've been practicing in bariatric surgery for now 10 years. And um, I just love it. It's uh, a wonderful way to uh, impact health um, on pretty much all levels. Okay. Why bariatric surgery? What drew you to this field? Well, you know, initially I thought what drew, what drew me in was the, the, the technical aspects of the surgery. Uh, the surgery is, you know, probably the most commonly known surgery is the gastric bypass. Um, and in that surgery, which is done laparoscopically, meaning minimally invasive approach where we put cameras in and we operate with, you know, long instruments inside the body, um, that is just, it's such a technically challenging operation that I found it so exciting and so real and so, um, just so appealing when I first started learning about these surgeries. Um, but the truth is what really kind of pulled me in and kept me here was a personal story where my mom suffered with morbid obesity most of her life. And it just really, uh, you know, when that, when you see that and how it impacts someone you love, um, it gives you a little more fire and a little more of a motivation to stay. There's lots of surgeries that are technically challenging and interesting, but I feel like for me, it was important to have a personal story that went along with what I did, a motivation to, to be passionate about it. That's really nice. Oh, thank you. Just in case anyone doesn't know, do you want to say what exactly a bariatric surgeon is or what a bariatric surgeon does? Yes. So a bariatric surgeon is someone who specializes in altering the intestinal anatomy uh, to facilitate weight loss. And so uh, there are many different types of operations, all with sort of different, um, uh, we can call them different strengths. Uh, some of the operations are more geared towards resolving problems like diabetes. Uh, some of the operations, um, are more geared towards, um, curbing appetite. And some of the operations are, um, impact digestion and impact, um, absorption of food and calories. 
So there's different types of operations, but they all have the same ultimate goal, which is to uh, promote weight loss. Can you tell us a little bit about the obesity problem and why, why weight loss surgery, I guess, has become necessary? Yeah, that's a great question. So when you think about um, weight, most of us think, well, it's a lifestyle problem, right? That's kind of like the first thing we all think. We all think, well, it's a lifestyle problem. So why would you use surgery to fix a lifestyle problem? Well, when you look back in history, um, we've had many lifestyle problems that have led to surgical solutions. A really clear example that I think everyone would agree with would be lung cancer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 80% of uh, lung cancers occur in smokers. So smoking being a, a um, lifestyle choice, um, it ultimately led to a disease. And the solution for the disease was to use surgery to remove the cancer. And then, of course, you know, immediately. And then, of course, we still went on with education. We mm-hmm. taught those folks to quit smoking. And we taught other people not to start smoking. And so surgery became necessary because once we have a disease state, then we need to fix the disease state and then teach people how to prevent falling back into it. For example, if you start smoking again, you be, you will probably get a lung cancer again. And we don't hesitate to use it in that instance. Okay. So when we look at the number two leading cause of death in the United States, it's obesity. And it is, in effect, a disease state, just like cancer is. And so when we get to the point of having morbid obesity, not just, you know, obesity can be classified into different levels of severity. And what a bariatric surgeon deals with, someone like me, we deal with morbid obesity, okay. which, you know, we can define in a minute. But it, it you know, if you want to give a number to it, it's roughly someone who has about 90 pounds or more to lose. Okay. And so when you're dealing with someone like that, who has a lot of weight, or let's just say 100 pounds, if we round it up, 100 pounds to lose, they are now in a disease state. And it is necessary for us to address the disease state first, while doing education to um, promote a healthy lifestyle that, that doesn't allow that disease state to recur. The pandemic of obesity um, is very real, and we've noticed over the last 50 years a rise in obesity rates. So in the United States, it went from 14% in 1960 to roughly 40% today, Um, and that's a really dramatic rise. In Canada, uh, I couldn't tell you what the rate was in 1960, but I could tell you that right now it's 29%, Mm -hmm. and that is very high too. Um, when we look at children in the United States, the overall uh, rate of obesity in all children, that would be the same one, well, newborn to 18, it would be 20%. Um, in Canada, that number is 14%. Um, so these, it doesn't show any evidence of slowing. And, and especially when you stratify and you look at children between the ages of 12 and 18, mm-hmm. in the U.S., that rate is 50%. So it's actually higher than the adult obesity rate, um, which is, of course, extremely concerning. Sorry, so can you that one again? You think, Did you say the children are higher? Yeah. Wow. So between the ages of 12 and 18. Okay. Yeah. 
Wow. It's actually 50%. Yeah. So that is, ex- that is very concerning because it means that there's no, it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be going down over the next 10 years. It's actually going to go up from 40% in the U.S. And, um, you know, so when you think about all of that, um, it becomes very evident why we need to address this and address it quickly. Surgery has the benefit of promoting very um, significant weight loss, uh, roughly about 75% of the excess weight being lost within one year. And so that's why surgery is so important. Could we do diet and exercise alone? Pretty hard to do when you have a disease state and it's very slow. And so when you have a pandemic that's increasing, the last thing you want to do, especially as we talk in the, in the midst of a pandemic yeah. is go slow, you know, so we don't want to give somebody, give, you know, a vaccine that's going to take five years to work right. with COVID, right? We're trying to get something that works within months. And it's the same thing with obesity. We need to address it and address it quickly and address it effectively. And that's why surgery is necessary. Wow. Thank you. Could you tell us a bit about overweight, obesity, morbid obesity, I guess the differences between Mm -hmm. those categories, and then what would cause you to advance to the disease state? How, how does one become, I guess, diseased with obesity? Yes. Oh, all great questions. (laughs) Stuff I love to talk about. (laughs) Get comfortable. (laughs) So, so, um, so overweight, so we, we define all of this based on something called the body mass index. Right. And the body mass index is a measure of your weight in kilograms uh, relative to your height in meters and, and the height is squared. So the relative to your height in meters squared. Um, so when you look at that equation, it it's almost looks like the equation of sort of roundness Um, and that's really what we're looking at. We're looking at the roundness of an individual, which is why it's, it doesn't matter whether it's male or female. Um, the roundness will be pretty much reflected in the BMI. And so the BMI, um, is for both men and women. And when we look at body mass index, what is considered ideal weight is a body mass index between 20 and 25. So that would be someone who, for example, I'd say the average height of women is right around five foot five. And so it would be someone between the weight of 125 and 150 pounds mm-hmm. um, or a man who's five foot five. Same thing. Uh, if you're taller and uh, you are, say, five foot ten, then that ideal range would range from 150 to 174. Uh, male or female. Um, and then when we talk about overweight, we're looking at a BMI between 25 and 30. So, and every point of BMI goes, it, it increases by say about five pounds. Okay. So you can kind of do the math, but uh, a BMI between 25 and 30 is overweight. Between 30 and 35, we're now into obesity. And that would be class one. Mm-hmm. And then class two obesity is a BMI between 35 and 40 and class three is above 40. Now, who do we operate on? Who do we do surgery on? 
Well, we will take anyone between a BMI of 35 and 40 if they have also a medical problem uh, that is weight associated. So if they have a weight like, um, okay, so say that their BMI is 37 and they have diabetes okay, um, or BMI of 38 or 39 and high blood pressure, that's someone who qualifies for surgery. Over a BMI of 40, then you're talking about uh, uh, it doesn't matter whether they have a medical problem or not. The, the obesity at that point, which is class three obesity, is so severe that it is indicated for them to proceed directly to surgery, whether they have medical problems or not. Okay. Now, how does somebody go from BMI of 25 or 26, which is overweight, all the way up to a BMI of 40. And it, it just happens very gradually, you know? So a lot of people will say, well, I don't know. I just noticed that every year I gained about five to 10 pounds. And then 10 years later, I was a hundred pounds overweight mm -hmm. um, or 70 pounds overweight, you know? And then what happens is it starts to accelerate with more and more weight. As we get older, as we, so not as we get old, well, actually it is that as you get older, our, everything slows down. Yeah. We don't exercise as much. We, we go more and more into a sedentary lifestyle. We go more and more into our jobs, our careers, and that occupies most of our day. You know, I think back to my days, I went to McMaster university when I was at Mac, uh, I rollerbladed between every class uh, to every classroom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, I did say roller. <laughs> <laughs> they existed back then. Um, and then half the time I would have these two hour breaks and go play basketball for two hours. And then in the afternoon, if I felt like it, I'd go for a run. You know, there, there was a lot of activity when I was 21 years old. Um, now that I'm, you know, 25 years later and I'm 46, well, you know, there's not a lot of activity going on. There's certainly no more rollerblades. <laughs> so as we get older, our tendency to gain weight increases, and most of us don't adjust the way we eat as we get older. So that's part of what contributes to this. The other thing is our metabolism slows. Um, some women will go through menopause, and that changes things. Um, men also, their metabolism slows and changes as we get older. So that's part of it. Um, but there's something called metabolic syndrome, which we can develop as we get bigger. Um, and what that is, it's, it's a steady rise in your insulin levels. Mm -hmm. So as your insulin just continues to rise and rise and rise, insulin is a powerful growth hormone. It's a powerful um, absorption hormone. So it's going to cause you to absorb more of what you eat. And it's also going to cause you to store what you eat as fat. And so as that insulin level is increasing, as you're developing that metabolic syndrome with increasing weight, then your hunger is increasing. Your ability to absorb food is increasing. Your ability to store it away as fat is increasing. And so it starts to accelerate and that's kind of how you go from overweight to obese, to morbidly obese, to more, more morbidly obese, 
um, with time. Wow. And insulin has something to do with diabetes as well, right? So are, are metabolic syndrome and diabetes related? They are. And it's really interesting. When you look at diabetes, right, what's the, the treatment for diabetes? It's insulin, right? Mm-hmm. Most of us take insulin when, when we have diabetes, well, when you get to a severe state of diabetes, you need insulin. But if you actually check the insulin levels of a diabetic, they're very high. Mm. So you wonder, well, wait, why would they need insulin if their body is producing so much of it? And it's basically because with time that insulin becomes less and less effective. And so your body starts producing more and more of it. But the side effect of it is that you're absorbing more, you're more hungry, you're storing away more as fat. And yes, you're be- you become diabetic when eventually you kind of fall off the cliff and your insulin no longer works at all. So they're very much intertwined, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and obesity. In fact, one of the companies I work with, uh, you know, to, to do the surgeries, like one of the companies that produces the stapling device we use. Okay. Um, they call it diabesity. And they say that basically the two diseases are so closely tied, diabetes and obesity. And it makes sense because you, when you look at obesity or the diabetes rates in the obese public, uh, it is three times that of the uh, non-obese public. And so those two diseases are closely tied. So what can we do about it? So we know that we are getting larger as a society. And so it also, it almost becomes normal. Like, is this really a big deal? My, my aunt is, my grandma is, my mom is, everybody in my family is, and we're kind of all doing fine. Like, it's just yeah. how we are. We're thick people, you know, right. should we act? This is such a wonderful and important question because we need to start to separate out what is health and what is appearance. You know, I know a lot of people, I mean, you know, I'm Caribbean, right? Um, and, and you are too. And, and I know a lot of people in the Caribbean that will say, oh, I like myself this way. I look, look at me, you know, I <laughs> big and beautiful. And, you know, what? A, you know, there, there's so much of that in the Caribbean, right? Um, that, but that's not, that's, that's aesthetics. That's beauty in the eye of the beholder. But what we're talking about is the science. So now we're talking about health and we're talking about will that same auntie live as long if she is a hundred pounds overweight? Mm-hmm. Probably not, you know? Um, and as a population, we need to think about health of the population. Overall, will the population live as long if they are overall overweight? And the answer is no. Um, people, there have been a whole bunch of, uh, uh, octogenarian and nonagenarian studies, people who live to eighties and nineties. And the only thing that has connected that group has been weight. Nothing else has connected them because, you know, in these studies, you'll see people from some from the Caribbean, some from, uh, Europe, some from Latin America, Africa, They're from very different, disparate regions. But the only thing that connects all of those people who live that long is that they tend to have a body mass index between 20 and 25. 
Um, and so it's an independent, um, I wouldn't say risk factor. It's an independent factor for longevity. Okay. So we need to start coming aware of these scientific facts and it needs to be a little bit more in the public ear, you know, and that's why I'm so happy to do this type of a discussion with you because I feel like this is, this is the way to do it is we need to educate everyone mm -hmm. and everyone needs to know, okay, we're not talking about, I'm going to look the best at a BMI of 20 to 25. We're talking about, I'm going to live the healthiest. I'm going to live the longest. And that's what we're looking for is health and longevity. Um, you know, when we separate those things out, we can have an open discussion around weight, but when it becomes personal, when it becomes about um, appearance, then it's very difficult to have this conversation, right? I yeah. mean, imagine trying to have that conversation with a family member, mm -hmm. you know, you can't. Um, but when it's always about health, then it becomes a lot easier. And especially if they've already heard it before and it's just kind of common knowledge. So I think we have to raise consciousness and raise awareness about weight and the effects of weight. And we need to also stop judging those who, who have gained the weight, you know? So it's not just for people who have gained the weight to seek help, but also for all of us to support them in a loving way and in a way that uh, avoids judgment and criticism and one that is more open and more um, accepting and loving. Yes, for sure. So I've, I've seen a couple of episodes of the TLC show, <laughs> My 600 Pound Life. And something that stands out to me when I look at that show is it seems like there's a huge mental component to it. And there's definitely a psychological piece that you have to get over. And you need a team <laughs> to support you through the whole thing. Yeah. Yes, you really do. Um, you know, most bariatric surgery programs uh, involve a team. So, for example, our program here, we have um, uh, a psychologist that works with us. We have a dietitian that works with us. And we have the bariatric surgeon. We have cardiologists. And we also are now about to add um, a bariatrician, which is an internal medicine or family doctor who also uh, focuses on sort of the medical side of weight loss. And all of this multidisciplinary team needs to be involved. From the patient standpoint, you, you touched on something, which is the psychology of the disease. And um, the patient needs to be made aware of all of that. And, and what we offer is a mindfulness curriculum around, um, you know, developing emotional awareness um, so, for example, uh, there's you, you've probably heard the term quarantine 15. Um, yeah. It's something that came up during the whole pandemic, right? So people gaining weight because of the pandemic. But you can ask yourself, does an infection with COVID-19 cause weight gain? No, it does not. Does Do pandemics cause weight gain? No, they do not. But what does cause weight gain is the stress, anxiety, hurt, sadness, frustration, and fear associated with a pandemic. And what's happening then is people eating their feelings. 
And so what we try to give all of our patients is um, a practice of mindfulness so that they can uh, be emotionally aware and make conscious choices in the presence of hurt, angry, lonely, tired, frustration, fear. Okay. And, and I feel like that is the key to long-term success because, you know, surgeries, it's great. I'm doing this thing that changes your metabolism for a period of time that changes your absorption for a period of time. Um, that's great. But if you don't have awareness of how your emotions are tied to the way you're eating, um, then you're really going to, you're setting yourself up for weight regain you know, two, three, or five years after surgery. So, um, you know, and I, I've had patients come in and they'll say, I really don't eat emotionally, right? Mm-hmm. And, but that same patient will say, I had a very tough month because I lost my job or I uh, gained weight when we were all at home for the pandemic. And so, you know, clearly we all eat emotionally, Right. <laughs> I don't think there's a single person out there that does not. So, um, yeah, we've just, I think that awareness of it is a, an important starting point. So it's entirely possible to regain the weight after surgery. And something like that is possible if we're not mindful of what we eat. So it's not like a cure for all. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. In fact, that's exactly what we say. It's a tool and not a cure. For weight loss. Are there any disparities in care-seeking behavior when it comes to handling the issue of obesity? There are. Um, well, for one, uh, if you look across this country and Canada, and actually most of Europe, the percentage um, uh, of patients who seek morbid uh, who seek uh, treatment, it's ninety percent female. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's between 80 and 90%, depending on the country, but 80 to 90% female. So there is a huge disparity between male and female. Um, there's also, when you look at minorities, again, the same thing happens where it is about 75 to 80% white, um, even though that's not necessarily in every country, uh, the representation of, of the population. Um, so it's, it's highly overrepresented by white females. Um, and you know, you, yeah, we, I know you're going to ask, well, why is that? Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> There's a number of reasons. Um, and, and it's, you know, of course that answer is going to be really complex and multifactorial. Um, there, I mean, we could think of a few, uh, a few reasons. One would be, um, just in general, accessing healthcare, uh, minorities tend to access it a whole lot less, yeah. right? So, um, so there's some of that. Uh, there's prejudice in in all walks of life. So, the the white male doctor or white female doctor may not be um, aware of those prejudices and may not be treating that you know, Asian or black or um, Indian patient or Latin patient the exact same way that they're treating another patient. Right. Um, so that's internalized prejudice. 
that they may or may not be conscious of. Um, and other, other issues are socioeconomic. So there are, there's socioeconomic disparities within those communities I mentioned. Um, when we look at gender, male and female, um, men in general go to the doctor for three reasons, pain, bleeding, and impotence. Uh, almost none of which is represented with obesity, right? Except maybe impotence, which is tied to obesity. And so generally speaking, men are not going to access healthcare as often um, or as successfully as women do. Mm. So we do see a disparity there. Um, and then when we tie in uh, appearance, uh, while surgery doesn't have a goal of making you look good, um, there's a greater uh, emphasis in society at large on women's appearance. Yeah. And because of that, uh, they, they may seek out the surgery um, because of that um, and trying to change and alter that appearance towards something more what they see on TV. So those are some of the reasons. I mean, it's not all the reasons, but that's some of it. Yeah, that, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. If someone's considering this surgery, what kind of questions should they be asking when they're thinking, like, is this for me? I'd say the first question is always going to be, what have I tried? Um, and really looking honestly at that. Um, because I think one of the things that stops people from coming for surgery is this concept of, I know I can do it if I just diet and exercise more, right? Um, and I've had people literally delay surgery for 10 years thinking that. And so the first question is, well, you've probably already tried diet and exercise. So if you've tried it, why is this time going to be different? And if, if you really don't have a good reason why this time is going to be different, it's probably time for surgery if you qualify. Um, at the very least, it's time for a discussion with a bariatric surgeon. The other thing to ask yourself is, how long have I tried it? Because it's different if you've tried diet and exercise for two weeks and then gave up uh, versus if you tried it for six months and lost 10 pounds. Because as I said, most of the patients that I see have about 100 pounds or more to lose. So 10 pounds would represent a 10% result. Whereas with surgery, they're going to get 75% results. So you can see how there's a much more dramatic health benefit to losing 75 of the 100 pounds versus losing 10 of the 100 pounds. Um, and so it's really important to ask yourself, how long have I tried? And, you know, and if it's been six months and there isn't really the success you need, it's probably time to, again, approach this with um, open eyes and open heart. Um, so that's where I would start. And then, you know, asking yourself, is it, is it fear that's keeping you from surgery? We all fear, you know, a, a devastating complication in surgery. Myself included, and I'm a surgeon, right? But the thing that to ask yourself is, which is safer, living with the weight or having surgery? And just in case there's any question, I'll, I'll give you the answer. <laughs> The answer is it's safer to have surgery than to live with the weight. The risk of complications from surgery is less than the risk of complications of weight. Yeah. So to, to add some numbers to that, 
a woman who is 50 pounds overweight has two times the risk of early mortality than a woman who is not overweight. A man who is 50 pounds overweight has three times that risk. And the more weight you add, the more those risks go up. So it's a real sort of tangible difference. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Is there something specific about being overweight that pulls that mortality trigger or is it the combination of effects? It's a combination of things, but to give you a few very specific things, cancer rate is 30% higher. So um, if I had 100 people who are with that, who have that BMI between 20 and 25, 17 of them will develop a, life, a cancer at some time in their lifetime. If I have 100 people who are obese, 51 of them Whoa. will develop cancer. Yeah. Uh, cancer is a big part of it. Um, and then heart disease is the other, the other big part of it. Are there any common misconceptions about this domain, being overweight or obese or, or surgeries in general, things you hear that you think, oh my gosh, why do people think this? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm so glad you asked me that. Um, yes, yes, yes. The first one I'd have to say that drives me nuts is you're taking the easy way out if you have surgery. Not at all. Okay. There's a lot of work involved with having surgery, right? You're going to see a psychologist. You're going to see a dietitian. You're going to see me. You're going to see another doctor. You're going to change your whole way of thinking about food. You're going to change your lifestyle. You're going to start exercising. You're going to totally upend your life and take control of your diet and lifestyle. So there's nothing easy about it, right? It's not like, oh, I just had surgery. You're not swallowing a pill and then losing weight. Um, this is a full, this is a lot of work. Okay. Um, so it's not taking the easy way out. And that would be like telling somebody who had developed a lung cancer going and having surgery is just taking the easy way out. You should just quit smoking and, mm. you know, start exercising more. And you know, no, no, they need surgery. This is a severe disease, right? Um, so that's one that really drives me crazy when I hear that. Um, the other thing I hear sometimes drives me crazy is the, that it's not safe, that the surgeries aren't safe. Um, and it comes from something in the past. You know, when these surgeries were developed, which was in the 60s, of course, there was a higher risk. They were done in a very different way back then. It was done mostly on people who were kind of like in that show that you were watching, people who had three, four three or 400 pounds to lose. Um, so they were, they were super high risk to begin with. Um, you know, even on that show, he will lose patients. Yeah. Every so often somebody dies, right? Because this is the super duper high risk population. Um, but the majority of patients in this, in this group are not that big. They're not 700 pounds or 800 pounds, right? They're 350 pounds. So they're not so high risk. And it's really about that. It's about the patient selection and all of the workup that we now know to do preoperatively to make it safe so that we anticipate the patient who has severe heart disease or sleep apnea 
or some other problem that's going to make it so that we have to alter the way we do things. And also, we just have way more experience. It's been 50 years, you know, and as, as you do something for that long, and now we have fellowship programs that train people on how to do these things very well. You spend time after your general surgery training, spending a year or two just doing these surgeries and learning from an expert in an expert center. And so everything has changed. The, the training around it, the patient selection, the way we prepare patients for surgery, and the surgeries themselves. And because of that, it's now equally safe as taking out a gallbladder and oftentimes just as safe as doing a hernia. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's a very, very safe operation. And um, we really want to promote the safety of this. Anything else you hear that drives you crazy? (laughs) Oh, that's another good one. Your stomach will stretch and you'll gain all the weight back. Interesting. And, you know, yeah. and, And so... That's, again, us really kind of not understanding this disease. Um, You know, again, I go back to that, that idea of the smoker. There's only one thing that brings back that cancer after you take it out with surgery. It's smoking. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, there's only one thing that causes the weight gain after surgery. It's eating the old way. Okay, so we always promote these changes and we teach patients how to be mindful and to be aware of what they're eating and to really, uh, you know, be making conscious choices around food, but not everyone does it. And I've had patients come back to see me years after the fact, having gained weight. Um, One of them, I think of all the time she was in tears because she really felt I'm doing everything right. I've gained 50 pounds back. And it's scaring me. Okay. She had lost 150 and had gained back 50. And she was very, very distressed. And so I talked to her about it. She said, it's because my stomach stretched. I know it. We went ahead and did an endoscopy where I put the camera down and looked, took pictures and showed her how narrow her stomach still was. And then uh, what I had her do after that was I had her do a photographic food diary. So she returned to my office about two weeks later with her pictures. She sat down across from me. She giggled and she looked at me and she said, Dr. Perryman, it was me all along. (laughs) And she showed me her pictures and she flipped through her pictures. And it was all the things that she had stopped eating um, were all over her pictures. And it was amazing to her how she was unaware and how she had not noticed how her diet had changed back to the old ways. So, you know, we, we teach a lot, um, but in the end, it's really about mindfulness because without emotional and conscious awareness, uh, there's not, there's not much I can do. You know, you have to be able to notice what you're doing and be aware of what you're doing and make conscious choices. I love that assignment. (laughs) Yeah. The photographic food diary is so powerful. I've, do you have any tips on patient advocacy, how patients can advocate for themselves when they're trying to make a decision about something or when they're in the healthcare domain? Yeah, I would say you have a right to see a bariatric surgeon for one, right? So sometimes the barrier is that primary care physician. 
who may not believe in it, for example. Uh, they may be older um, and been around bariatric surgery in the early days when there were more complications. And out of a, a, a real sincere concern for their patient, they don't want to recommend. But I would say that you have a right to have a conversation. So I would, you know, advocate for yourself by demanding a conversation, by demanding a referral to a uh, bariatric surgeon to go in at least have a conversation and learn. The other thing is there's a lot of good online sources. Uh, you know, I'll plug our, you know, I know you guys are in Montreal, but, you know, doesn't mean you can't, first of all, you, that you can't travel for surgery, but also that you can't learn from our website, right? So it's uh, the name of our practices, Whole Health Weight Loss Institute. So you can you can find us at whweightloss.com. And that's a good source for you to learn about these surgeries and learn about the pathology or the, the pathophysiology of obesity. But yeah, I, I'd start with conversations and talk to your primary care doctor. I'd also say that a lot of doctors are hesitant to bring this up because they don't want to, their patient to feel like they're judging them. If they have a long-standing relationship with the patient, they may feel awkward or uncomfortable bringing up their weight um, because they think that it's going to seem like they are judging their patient when they're not. They're just talking about the health. Um, so sometimes you bringing it up to your family doctor is like the greatest relief to that doctor. And they say, oh, so happy you brought that up. I wanted to talk to you about this for a long time, <laughs> you know? So do that, especially, you know, I'll, I'll say that that's also a barrier across cultures, right? Yeah. Sometimes that's a barrier, you know, a white doctor who doesn't want to bring it up to their Trini patient, mm -hmm. you know, or, <laughs> you know, so you can, you can say it to them, you know, and they, they feel more comfortable and they say, oh, thank God, you know, um, I didn't want to tell you about it. <laughs> yeah. You, you say that and you're like, and you make me think, you know, sometimes doctors are afraid to bring things up to patients. And I think sometimes patients are afraid to bring things up to, to doctors. And if you're going to yeah. be considering something like surgery or maybe something else, sometimes you feel like maybe I should just talk to another doctor to get a second opinion, compare them. How do you feel about that kind of stuff? Do you feel offended? Like, oh my gosh, she doesn't trust me. Or are you like, I welcome you to do that. I welcome people to talk to as many people as they can. Yeah. Um, because in the end it's their body and they have autonomy and they have a right to be comfortable with whatever choice they make and whatever physician they use. Right. Um, and I want to feel comfortable that they're comfortable. I think all doctors want that, you know, they don't want someone who chose them because it's the only choice. Right. Um, you know, so yeah, I, you know, I, I'd say, you know, talk it out. I, I think sometimes where it creates this kind of adversarial situation might be if, if someone says, well, I don't really believe what you're saying. So I'm going to ask someone else. Mm. Of course, that creates a, a more of an adversarial because you're still talking to a human being, right. the doctor, I mean, still a, a human being and that might, you know, pull that tug at something, uh, you know, tug at some insecurity, right? But um, once you really get down to the basic feeling of it all, we all want what's best for each other. 
And um, I think so long as uh, we're all being respectful of each other, uh, me respectful of my patient's autonomy, uh, a patient respectful of my, uh, my, my opinion, my medical opinion, then I think in the end, we're all going to be ending in the same place. Sure. I'm curious. Um, they say, and I know that this changes, but you know, roughly we're supposed to eat like 1200 calories a day, but when you do the surgery and it makes your stomach smaller and you eat less calories, how does that work? Well, you know, yeah, for a time, for a time, they're, they're eating less calories. You're right. I mean, after surgery, sometimes our patients are eating two to 400 calories initially. Um, and remember that not be hungry because the surgery does impact your appetite. Um, so, you know, for them, two to 400 calories may feel like 2000 calories, you know, just feeling completely full. Um, but, uh, they're in a need to, they're, they're needing to lose weight. And so they have to be in a negative energy balance. They have to have less coming in than what's going out. So somebody who's maintaining, yes, 1200 calories is a great number, but someone who's trying to lose weight, they need to have a negative. They need to be less than that. You just eat more nutrient dense stuff to absolutely your body where you yeah. are. Yeah, all the patients will be on a vitamin, uh -huh. you know, they're all gonna, we tell them eat protein first, to make sure they get enough protein in. And yes, they're going to eat things that are really high nutrition, we say eat whole foods, I don't want you eating prepared or processed things, I want you to eat things that are of the earth, fruits, vegetables, and meat, right, all of the earth, or beans, again, from the earth, you know, if you're vegan or vegetarian, you don't necessarily have to eat meat. In the beginning, we talked about, you know, like how people can progress up the scale from like overweight to obese to morbidly obese. Are there some things that make it harder for folks to lose weight than others? Well, I, you know, I would say, so one of the common misconceptions is that it's purely genetic, okay. right? And you've, you've probably heard the expression, the family that eats together stays together. Yeah, I've heard that. Um, well, we can also flip that and say the family that stays together eats together. In other words, families tend to eat in the same way. And so if there's a general poor nutrition in the family or poor food choices in the family, it's going to make it very hard for someone to lose weight. If, you know, they're all tending to eat fast food and all tending to eat foods that are high in fat, high in sugar, low in protein, low in vitamins, then of course you're going to have a hard time losing weight and it'll seem genetic because all my family is big, but it's really just all of your family is eating the same way. Um, so that's, that's kind of one of the things I'd say that, uh, other things that kind of get in the way are sedentary lifestyles, you know, lifestyles that, that just don't promote um, an active uh, sort of lifestyle. Do you have any closing thoughts as we wrap up? Um, I'm just so happy to do this. You know, we need to do this more. Um, uh, I, I, my closing thought is, is thank you. Gratitude. My, my, my closing thought is that I have such gratitude for being able to be here and spread an important message 
to people around um, obesity and morbid obesity and how to deal with it in their lives and how to advocate for themselves and for those they love. That's it. I just have such gratitude for being here. Thank you. And I, I'm just sitting down here thinking, how proud is your mom? <laughs> you know? Aww. <laughs> Like you said in the beginning that, you know, she's kind of part of your driving factor. And that's really cool. She must be so proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. That means a lot. And she is. It's a proud Trini mom. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Dr. Perryman, for coming to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. I I can tell how passionate you are about this, and I know it's personal, and I guess that helps a lot. So thank you for sharing your knowledge. Thank you again for your time, and I hope to see you again. Yes. Thanks again, Nikita. We'll see you again soon. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Perryman as much as I did. He's such a kind and warm doctor with an amazing why. If you would like to learn more about him and his work or the resources he mentioned during the episode, I have placed a link to the Whole Health Weight Loss Institute in the episode notes. Did you know that the Good Health Cafe also has a blog? Subscribe to our mailing list on thegoodhealthcafe.com to get updates when new blogs or episodes are posted. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram too. See you in the cafe next time. Bye.